The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Because oftentimes I, you know, run the service and preach. And so when we pray, I'm thinking about what I'm praying, and I don't get to, to pray, pray. And so this time I got to, to pray, and uh, I started thinking about when I was a kid growing up, my dad's a pastor, and I grew up in a more traditional type church, and he'd always go up to the altar and like kneel down and pray before he went and preached. And I always wondered what he was praying. And so I asked him as a kid, I said, Dad, what, what, do, you, what do you pray when you do that? And he said, Gabe, this is it. I just say, uh, dear Lord, don't let me make you look stupid. And then he goes up and preaches. Uh, so, uh, so I prayed that prayer this morning. We'll see how it goes. Um, we are, are in a series uh, called For the Love. And, and the idea of this series is, is this. We're, we're focusing on the, the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. Uh, that, that he's coming, that he's actually come as love incarnate, that he shows us what love is, and then he also came because he loves us. And so we look at that and we say, well, how does Jesus' love for us and this little baby, how does that then ripple into the rest of our relationships? How does that shape our loves for each other? And so kind of as an outline, we've been using the four Greek words for love to, to look at that all Advent season. And so first week we looked at storge. Uh, we didn't misspell storage. We looked at storge and... Um, and that's the Greek word for familial affection, family love. And so we looked at that. Last week, we looked at philia, uh, which is friendship, a friendship type of love. Next week, we're going to look at agape, which is steadfast love, eternal love, kind of this larger-than-life uh, sort of love. But today, this is why I said the prayer today, today uh, we are looking at eros, which is romantic love, romantic love. And now, now clearly you can tell uh, eros is, is where we get the English word uh, erotic, uh, and, and so we, we are, we are going to talk about sex today, uh, but, but I want to be clear on the front end here uh, that eros is more than just sex. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. And ultimate, ultimately what we're going to see today, and this is what I want to just so you all know where we're headed towards, what we're going to see today is that eros in its truest form is an intimacy and a covenant between one man and one woman for one lifetime. The eros in its truest form is an intimacy and a covenant between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And uh, we'll unpack that more as we're going through, but, but I want to just say that on the front end here to make clear where we're going. Uh, because I don't know if you ever noticed, but, but our culture uh, is massively confused when it comes to eros. It's massively confused when it comes to romantic love. And I say that, and I know I could just like come up here and I could regale you with statistic after statistic about the, the fatherless epidemic in our culture, about the absurdly, absurdly high amounts of pornographic consumption that happens every single day, about how a hookup culture is completely devastating many of our youth. I could talk about all that, but that'd be too easy. Right? That'd be too easy. Like, of course, the pastor at a church that believes the Bible's God's word is just going to come up there and just get really mad at everybody, right? That's, that's too easy to do. Uh, so I'm going to let someone else do it, okay? Uh, I came across an article a year ago uh, written by a young lady. Uh, she's a, a writer in her 20s, lives in L.A. Uh, from what I've read in this article and basically anything else she's written, uh, would not call herself a Christian. Her views of human sexuality don't necessarily line up with what, what would normally typify Christian belief. Uh, but a year ago, she wrote this article called This is How We Date Now. Uh, and, and in it, she said this. It was really interesting. It's a long quote, but you just follow along with me. We don't commit now. We don't see the point. They've always said there are so many fish in the sea, but never before has that sea of fish been right at our fingertips on OkCupid, Tinder, Grinder, Dash, Take Your Pick, 
Those are all apps, for those of you who don't know, um, and apps that are on your phone, not that you eat. Moving along. Uh, we, we can order up a human being in the same way we can order up pad thai on Seamless. We think intimacy lies in a perfectly executed string of emoji. We think effort is a good morning text. We say romance is dead because maybe it is. When we choose, if we commit, we are still one eye wandering at the options. We want the beautiful cut of filet mignon, but we're too busy eyeing the mediocre buffet because choice. Because choice, our choices are killing us. We think choice means something. We think opportunity is good. We think the more chances we have, the better. But it makes everything watered down. Never mind actually feeling satisfied. We don't even understand what satisfaction looks like, sounds like, feels like. We realize that this more we want is a lie. We want phone calls. We want to see a face we love absent of the blue dim of a phone screen. We want slowness. We want simplicity. We may not know yet that we want this, but we do. We want connection, true connection. We want a love that builds, not a love that gets discarded for the next hit. We want to come home to people. This is what we want, even if we don't know it yet. All right, so here we have a young lady right in her 20s. Would not say that she has a Christian worldview, but what does she say in this quote? She says, hey, there's, there's something wrong about the way our culture is handling sexuality. There's something wrong about how we're working through eros and romantic relationships. Something's not right. And guess what? She's right. But guess what else? We are far from the first culture to be confused when it comes to eros. In our text for today, St. Paul is, is writing to this, this church in a city called Corinth, which was part of the Roman Empire. And this is first century Roman Empire. And their views on Eros, on human sexuality, were just crazy. In that day, men had all the power when it came to sexual relationships. And so what would happen is, is a, a Roman man and a Roman woman would get married. But it would be purely for, for sort of social status, to, to move you up the ladder, to, to marry someone with good stock, to give you legitimate heirs. And that was it. And then the, the wife was expected to stay faithful to her husband because that's how he knew that the kids were his. But a husband wasn't expected to stay faithful to his wife. And so he'd go out and he'd get a mistress, someone who was this intellectual equal who could go, have fun with, sleep with, just like that was it. And then if he was an especially wealthy Roman man and had slaves, he'd take some of his female slaves and select them to be concubines. And they'd just sort of satisfy any carnal urges he had day in and day out. That's how it works. That was, that was a cultural norm then. Pretty messed up, right? Yes? Right? We, we, we don't agree with that, right? But it's into that context that St. Paul in our text today, he writes about how Christianity works. And I point that out to you to say this. As radical as St. Paul's words to us today are going to seem, they were just as radical, if not more so, in the original culture he wrote to. And so here's what we're going to see him say in our text for today. Three things. First of all, eros is not God. Eros is not gross. It's a gift. Eros, romantic love, sexuality, is not God. It's not gross. It's a gift. Okay, so let's get into our text. Eros is not God. But before we actually get into what we read earlier, I'm going to give us a little context because it actually helps shape for us. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 6.13. If you still have your Bible open, you can look at that with me. Otherwise, we'll have it up here. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 6.13 says this. A food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both 
one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. All right, so it says here, it says, uh, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, what does that mean? Well, what Paul's doing is he's actually uh, quoting a popular saying at that time in regards to human sexuality. Uh, and this is how it works. Uh, so, so back in the day, uh, the, the Roman Empire was greatly influenced by Greek philosophy. And uh, the line of thinking in Greek, Greek philosophy, just really simply put, went like this. The, the physical, the material, is bad. It's not good. It doesn't really matter. What really matters is the inner, the spiritual, your soul. And so they'd say, hey, what you do with your body doesn't really matter. Do whatever you want with it. All that matters is that you keep your soul clean, that you keep your soul pure. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Go ahead, do whatever you want. So that's the idea. So sexuality then is treated as an appetite, right? Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. Hungry? Eat something. You want to have sex? Have sex with someone. It doesn't matter. It's just your body. Who cares about your body? But then what does Paul say? He says, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. Now think about how revolutionary that is. Paul says, no, actually, how you use your body matters a lot. Why? Because as a Christian, your body is no longer your own. All of who you are is now joined to the Lord. You're united to Him, and so what you do with your body matters tremendously. And what that means for us, then, is that you use your body in a way that honors the Lord. And so culture doesn't determine how you use your body. And your instincts and impulses and the way you feel doesn't dictate how you use your body because eros is not God. It can't dictate how you use your body. God is God, and he's the one that gets the call on that. And he says our bodies are not meant for sexual morality. The reality is, all too often, we let Eros play God. We let it tell us how to use our bodies. We let it play God. And we do this in a couple ways. First, there's the obvious, right? The obvious right here. Where it says the body's not meant for sexual morality, right? So that's plain and simple. Sexual morality in the Bible, what does that mean? It's really simple. It's any sexual activity outside the covenant bonds of marriage. Like, that's it. Any sexual activity outside the covenant bonds of marriage. Uh, the, the Greek word for it is pornea. So you can guess what that's the, the root word for in English. Uh, and, and it seems simple enough, right? Like God's word is clear. Body's not meant for sexual morality. No sexual activity outside of marriage. But statistically, even within Christian circles, we know that this is kind of, we're kind of past this. Well, we're not we're actually past it, but we think we are. And so I was just doing some research. Uh, 85% of young men, 50% of young women admit to looking at pornography once a month. That in, in homes where, where uh, evangelical Christian homes, where kids grew up going to church at least once a week, 50% of them will have sex before they turn 18. In homes where they don't grow up going to church once a week or have never gone to church at all, the number's 68 to 75% of them will have sex before age 18. And I say all that, and some folks get really happy. Because they did it right. They got it together. They didn't fall into those traps of the world and sexual morality. But listen, there's another way that Eros can function as a God in your life. That isn't necessarily sexual morality, but Eros is still functioning as a God. Here's what I mean. Uh, so, so I turned 30 a couple weeks ago, uh, which means I've been thinking about death a lot lately. <laughs> and 
Um, and it, it led me to, uh, to reread uh, a book I read a while ago called, uh, I don't read the whole thing, but to look back over a book I read a while ago called The Denial of Death by a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Ernest Becker. Um, and in it, uh, Becker points out how our romantic partner, even the, the purest of romantic partners in the world, uh, can function as a God. That Eros can still function as a God. Listen to what he says. Once again, I've got another long quote today. But he says this. Modern secular people still need to feel like their lives matter in the grand scheme of things. They still need to feel that there is some higher meaning and that they have experienced some kind of great love. One of the first ways that occurred to modern person was what has been called the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being now, in many cases, we look to get from our love partner. The lover becomes the way to fulfill one's very life. The worth and meaning that you want now comes from the loved one. The romantic option may be ingenious and it may be creative, but it is a lie that must fail. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. That's why we fall in love. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence is not in vain. We turn to the love partner for validation. See, this is the more subtle and perhaps more dangerous way that Eros can function as a God in your life. That when you seek fulfillment, when you seek meaning, when you seek identity, justification, redemption, all of that in your spouse, all of that in your love partner, you're placing them in the place of God. And it doesn't work. No human being can satisfy that great of a desire. I said this, uh, this last week. Traditional cultures have a tendency to elevate familial love as the highest of loves. And then I mentioned that modern Western cultures like ours have a tendency to elevate romantic love as the highest of loves. And it's true. This happens. This happens in, in good Christian families. And so what happens then? We get crazy mad when our spouses aren't perfect. And we're devastated and we're crushed when romance doesn't deliver the meaning that it was promised to. When it's not just this constant journey of bliss. And when love is hard, we assume something is wrong. And the reality is something is wrong. We've elevated Eros to the position of God. And it doesn't work there. It's not God. And I say this. And someone says, dude, right on, pastor. You get it. You get it. Uh, so you know what? This sex, eros, romance, this, this is all messiness. Let's just pretend it's not really there. Let's just, let's just get rid of it. Let's just avoid it altogether. Can't do that. Eros is not God, but eros is not gross. Uh, look with me at our text, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Hey, real quick, just a quick poll. Uh, when Pastor Barrett read our text for today, how many of you who maybe grew up in church your whole life never heard that text before in your entire life? No one? Well, hey, there we go. All right. We got one participant. I guess the rest of you, you guys know your Bible or you're a bunch of liars. So we'll see. Um, I won't tell you which one I think it is. Uh, so 
at any rate, so, so, so check this out. All right, so, so these, these Christians in Corinth, they say, oh my goodness, we look at sexuality in our culture and it's a mess. People are getting hurt. It's devastating. It's, this is not good. And they say, you know what? You know what? We're just going to get real religious about it. We're going to get real restrictive about it. We're just going to walk away and say, you know what? Sex is just gross. It's dirty. We're not going to have anything to do with it. It may be necessary, you know, for procreation to further that along. So we'll do it. But that, like, that's it. Like, just to have to do that. But otherwise, it says, you know, it's not good for man to touch woman. So they ask Paul this. They say, is that how it should be? And Paul writes back to them. And what does he say here? He says, no. He says, you're overcorrecting. He says, if you're married, you should be having sex. Because sex isn't gross. Now, this sort of overly conservative view is maybe not as common today as it has been in cultures past. But there is a tendency in religious circles amongst conservative people to think this way. To think, well, hey, you know, like, we got to do it to make babies, but, like, let's just, let's not enjoy it. Let's not talk about it. Let's not celebrate it. Let's just be weird about it. Let's just keep it real hush-hush, tuck it away in the corner. Like, we we just don't want to do it. Let's not do it more than necessary. That's absurd. Look at what the Bible says. And listen, no one here may actively be thinking that, but if uh, I study a lot for, for this message, and if my studies showed me anything, it's this. People who aren't married should be having a lot less sex, but people who are married should be having a lot more. That's what it showed me. I mean, look at this text, right? Like, God is pro-sex. He invented it. It's his idea. It's not gross. It's a gift. It's a gift he's given us. It's a gift he's given you to be enjoyed in marriage. Look with me at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So, uh, so I read this text. Um, can you go to the next one for me there, Tyler? Do you fall asleep, bro? <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, so uh, at any rate, so, so I read this text to our staff at our staff meeting on Sunday. And, um, and I read just the first sentence. And, uh, and Sandy, our business administrator, her eyes rolled like so big. You could see it a mile away. Uh, but then I read the second one, and she's like, oh, I feel a lot better, right? I feel a lot better. Uh, and as well she should, right? Because if you look at this verse, like, it's amazing. I mean, it's radically countercultural both then and now. But it's amazing that the wife's body doesn't belong to her, but belongs to her husband. That the husband's body doesn't belong to him, but belongs to his wife. And see, this is consistent with the image of marriage that we see throughout Scripture. That the picture we're supposed to have of marriage is that a husband gives of himself for the sake of his wife. And that a wife gives of herself for the sake of her husband. And see, here's why this is so countercultural. Here's why it's so countercultural. Our culture primarily views eros, romantic love, sexual love, as an act of self-expression, as an act of self-gratification. And so we then treat relationships with others as consumer relationships, where we're always asking, what's in it for me? What can I get from this? But see, God's word says, no, 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 no. Marriage doesn't work that way. True eros doesn't work that way. It's not about what you take from the other. It's about what you can give to the other. It's a gift. And that's why this whole message I've been like hitting that the, the biblical prescription 
for eros is that the parameters for sex happen within the covenant relationship of marriage. And I think I oftentimes surprise people when I say that. Like, I'll be out of the bar or coffee shop, and I'll meet some people, and they'll find out I'm a pastor, and we'll talk, and we get into hot-button issues, and, and they'll be like, oh, well, hey, here's this young guy. He's pretty hip, seems rel- relevant, has those stupid earrings. Uh, I, bet, I bet he's, like, way up to date on sexuality and is totally in line with, with how things work. And I'm always like, no, man, I'm pretty, like, y- you got to be married. That's how it works. And what? No way. And here's why, though. Here's why this is so important. Is as Christians, man, we love God and we love people. Which means we value relationships tremendously. And so for the most intimate of relationships, we don't treat it casually. And so we don't believe in complete physical oneness without full life oneness. Intimacy is never to be separated from commitment. You don't give of your body what you're not first willing to give of the rest of your life. It doesn't make sense. And so true eros, true romance, is found only within the covenant bonds of marriage. Why is that? Because it's only in a covenant that you can give of yourself, that you can truly do it. See, outside of a covenant, see, in a covenant, what do you do? Wedding day, what happens? You get up there and you say, hey, uh, you know, sickness and in health till death do us part, blood in, blood out, homie, like... You just, you just lay it, that was the Hebrew edition. And, uh, and so you just, you, you lay it out there for them. Um, and, and so you say, I'm committed to this. In a consumer relationship, which the moment you feel the other person maybe isn't holding up their end of the deal, or they think you're not holding up your end of the deal, then they just walk away. This isn't what I thought it was, I'm just walking away. See, and that's why I'll, I'll get young couples, I'll be like, Pastor, it's basically like we're married. It's basically like you have no idea what you're talking about. Because this is... <laughs> This is the difference. A consumer relationship asks, what have you done for me lately? A covenant relationship asks, what did I promise you previously? See, I don't hold to how I'm feeling in the moment. I hold to what I promised you back then. And so I'm free to give of myself. In a consumer relationship, I take. In a covenant relationship, I give. And that's true romance, is it not? That's true love. That's true eros. And so let me be clear, though, this, like, living into a covenant relationship doesn't just happen because you made a covenant. Like, there's people that don't live into it. And that for us to live into it takes intentionality. It takes choosing to do it. It takes reminding yourself to do it. So uh, I I don't know about you, but um, after I I work for a day, I mean, I only work Sundays, so after today, uh, it is... (laughs) Uh, no, but, but after I get done with work for the day, like, I'm really tired. I'm really tired. And so all I want to do is come home and just, like, veg out, catch up on Walking Dead, you know, make it happen. And, uh, but the reality is my, my wonderful wife has been at home nannying for another family and taking care of our two little kids all day. And so when I come home, guess what? Like, I got to show up, right? I got to be present. And so when I pull into my driveway most days, when I remember to, I say a prayer. And it's really simple. It's really short. I just say this. Say, God, help me serve Melissa today. Help me serve my wife today. And to be quite honest, it's less a prayer and more a plea at that point, but, but that's, that's what we ask for. And, uh, and I'm far from the perfect embodiment of this, but the thing, uh, something about that prayer at least helps frame my time with Melissa in terms of covenant instead of in terms of consumer. This is our opportunity with Eros. 
to not make it God, to not make it gross, but to fully live into it for the gift that it is. A gift in which we can live a life of radical self-donation for the sake of the other. Can you imagine if we started living like that? It'd be amazing. But here's the reality. Like, none of us does that perfectly. None of us can do that perfectly. Like, there was, there's no one sitting here in relationship to this word eros that has an innocent conscience on it. Not a single one. And, and I say that, and I hope you all know this, man. Like, as I prep for this message, I don't think I've prayed over a message as much as I have over this one. Because I know a topic like this, there's always a lot of guilt. There's always a lot of shame and hurt and brokenness. There just is. So I just want to say my goal for you today is to not make you feel bad about your imperfection in regards to God's design for Eros. That's not my goal. No, no, no. My goal for today is to point you to your ultimate lover. It's to point you to the true lover. It's to point you to Jesus Christ. And I know I say that and I call him the ultimate lover and it's like, whoa, weirdo, like why are you talking like that? Because that's how he talks about it. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the husband, you're the wife. I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. He says, I'm pursuing you, I'm chasing after you. I want to find you, I want to give my love to you, I want to be united to you. That's how he talks about his relationship to each of you. The uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tells a story that really helps illustrate it. I've told it here before, but it's just so great, so you just got to hear it again. Uh, and, and he explains how this works with Jesus' relationship to us, and, and, he, and it goes like this. There's a, there's a king who goes out to survey his domain, and he goes out to look and see, you know, all the land that he rules over. And, and when he's out there, he sees this, this beautiful peasant woman, this beautiful little damsel, and he's just smitten by her. He says, oh, that woman has got to be my wife. And so the king goes back to his palace, and he starts thinking, well, hey, how, how can I make her my wife? How can I make this work out? And he says, oh, I'm the king, right? So I'll just issue a decree that she's got to marry me. She'll marry me. She's my wife. Done deal. So he does that. One of his servants comes up to him and says, hey, king, you know, like, you can do that if you want. That's fine. Uh, but just know, if you do that, yeah, she'll marry you. But you'll never know, king. You'll never know if she really loves you. You'll never know if she really cares about you says, oh, you're right. Now I know why I pay you so much. And so uh, the king says, all right. Oh, I got it. He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll just ride down to her village, get down on one knee, ask her to marry me. And the servant comes up to him and says, king, you know, I mean, you can do that. You can do that. But I don't know if you ever noticed, king, when you travel, like, you don't travel alone, bro. Like, you always got a parade with you. You got horses. There's heralders, trumpeters. Like, king, when you travel, the ground shakes. Do you think this woman's going to be in any kind of condition to respond to your proposal if you show up like that? And the king is crushed. He says, oh, you're right. You're right. And so he goes to bed that night, and the king's tossing and turning. He's thinking, how can I get this woman to be my wife? How can I get this woman to be my wife? And then it hits him. That the only way he can get this woman to be his wife, the only way he can know if she truly loves him is if he takes off his ring, if he takes off his crown, if he steps down from his throne and moves into her village as a peasant and woos her on level ground. Friends, this is what you have in Jesus. 
That he is the Son of God from eternity who left the glories of heaven, the love of his Father, and entered into our humanity, into our flesh, to woo you on level ground, to bring you into a right relationship with him. Listen to these words from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You hear what this text is saying? It's saying, listen, Jesus gave himself up for you. Why? To make you holy, to sanctify you. And how does he do that? He cleanses you by the washing of the water with the word. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to baptism which is a covenant ceremony where God grabs hold of you and says, hey, I'm never letting go of you. You're my kid no matter what. You may have done this. You may have made this mistake. You may have sinned here and there. doesn't matter. I'm presenting you without blemish. I'm presenting you holy before God. And how can Jesus do that? Because Jesus is the lover who gave everything he had for you. And he did it on the cross. That on the cross, he took all your guilt, took all your shame, he took the divorce, he took the porn, he took the immorality, he took the adultery, he took the lustful thoughts, he took the selfish attitudes, all the pain and brokenness that you feel when it comes to this idea of eros, and he took that on himself. He said, it's gone now. He gave of himself for you to forgive your sins, that you'd know God, your Father. He literally poured his blood out for you that you might be washed clean and stand before God holy and perfect. That's how much he loves you. So as you put your trust in him, know that you are cleaned, you are forgiven, you stand without blemish, and you're free to live into Eros the way he's designed it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you would enter into this world You'd enter into our humanity. You'd identify with us that we might know you, that we might know your love. But that ultimately, Lord, you took all our sin, all our brokenness to the cross. And God, I know I have friends here this morning who have tremendous pain when it comes to a topic like this. They have pain or shame or guilt or whatever it is, Lord. And I just pray that they would hear about your grace, that that would ring true for them this day, that that's what would stick out. That you're the God who loves them so much that nothing at all separates them from you. That they're fully embraced and fully loved by you. Lord God, be with my friends. Teach us to see you as the ultimate lover. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.